Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons. In this episode, we discuss the importance of making accurate estimates of time, budget, capability, size, just about anything relating to the engineering profession. Along the way, we discuss the need for thorough documentation, frequent adaptation, and regular communication in providing accurate estimations. The Engineering Commons explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of field or industry. Join Adam, Brian, Carmen, and Jeff as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 139, Estimation, June 5th, 2018. So, Brian, do you have to make project estimations at work? Um, quite often. Hmm. What, like, what kind of estimation? Uh, how fast I can complete something, uh, estimated cost of uh, whatever we're designing, and uh, usually form factor estimates. You know, how big is something going to be? Mm-hmm. And and uh, do you have uh, various qualities of guesses that you, you offer? Uh do you mean do uh, do I preface or uh, caveat my guesses based on my level of confidence? Well, I, I meant more that that uh, when I was working at the machine shop and we were we were quoting special machinery, we had mm-hmm. various levels of of guessing. Uh, there was the uh, the wag, the wild ass guess, uh, which was not to be confused with the swag, which was the scientific wild ass guess. Um, you know, I just didn't know whether you, you had uh, had tailored sort of a nuanced language for the exact precision of the estimates of the estimates you gave. No, we don't get very granular, uh, <laughs> or at least I don't get very granular. Uh, typically, my estimates uh, uh, vary based on the amount of asterisks I'm adding to whatever I'm saying. So I, 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 for whatever reason, think in terms of text and I'll always add, there's an asterisk on, on the back of anything I just said, which is this may be totally wrong, <laughs> you know, given, and also like given these assumptions, blank, 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 then say about an hour's worth of stuff. And Hey, remember all of these assumptions could possibly be wrong. Right. So. Yeah, the the hard part with all that is is the uh, the anchoring effect, right? It doesn't matter exactly what gets said in the meeting, but as soon as somebody says it, everybody gloms onto that number, uh, and it's hard to uh, it's hard to get that number out of people's heads once they've gotten it. God forbid you make the meeting notes, <laughs> right? Oh, well, I've also recognized that uh, people always very conveniently forget whatever risk they've signed up for, so. Um, they could agree with your caveats and, you know, let you speak uh, fairly freely, but they'll they'll remember what they want to remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that number unless the number's too big or too small, depending on which side you're looking at. I always have to give my boss two estimates for my reports. One is the day I will get him hit the report, and two is the day – when it'll be ready, ready after it goes through sign off, gets approved, the tech doc team gets its hands on it. And that could take anywhere from one to two months, depending on how slow and, you know, how long people let it sit in their inboxes to approve. And <laughs> I have no control over the matter other than spamming the reminder email button. 
Well, and you sit in the meeting and everybody agrees that, oh, yeah, we'll pitch in and we'll help out and and uh, we'll do what we can to get you the information you need to get this done. And and uh, life gets in the way. Right. And, yeah. <laughs> and and so all they remember is you you were pressured into promising the report two weeks from now, but they all forget that. You know, the caveat on that was on the condition that they supplied the information within 24 hours. Yeah, they supplied the information. They read it when it hit their inbox. They whatever. And <laughs> tell my boss, I can get it to you by that day, whether everyone else can. That's another question. Well, yeah. Don't people regularly hold you to timelines that you never had anything to say about? <laughs> well, my boss is actually pretty good in that regard as he understands and, you know, he knows it's not just me. For some of the stuff. Other things, when it's just like a test report or whatever, yeah, then it's all riding on me. But for the big documents and test reports that'll go on the, the TI website, that's got to go through a couple other people other than me. And he gets it. That could take a while. My favorite are when, you try, when you're put on the hook with respect to scheduling solutions. <laughs> you know. Oh, in, invent a cure for cancer in the next week? Yeah, because it, it, it's, it's never... I never have issues dealing with the, hey, we have to, you know, get this documentation done. We've got to get, you know, this board out to be made. It's always, you know, something isn't working. Uh, what's the schedule for getting this working? Mm-hmm. And uh, telling people that, you know, long-winded answers that you can't schedule problem-solving or innovation uh innovation with pinky in the air generally doesn't get you very far. People management doesn't like that. I should say. (laughs) Right. But it's an honest answer. Right. Well, and I suppose that's why uh, we decide that we would uh, dedicate this episode to talking about estimation. It's something that engineers at some point are required to do. And we've, we've joked at it a few times. I think on the very first episode, I had mentioned my rule of pi for estimating time and budget, but we thought we'd take a little deeper dive into it uh, during this episode and uh, talk about some of the factors that, that affect uh, the quality of those types of estimations. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be time estimations, too. There's you know engineering-related mathematical estimations as well, whether it's starting values for a component or sketch dimensions, you know, something like that. Yep. You know, trying to find a, a document or a resource or a reference here to work from was a little difficult. It, it, a lot of them got so deep in the weeds. I found a document uh, from – it's on the uh, Kennesaw State University website, but the the slides listed as being Southern Polytechnic State University. So somehow those two institutions <laughs> are connected, and I don't know exactly uh, where they are. But uh, – and I, I don't see a name on this on the slides – uh, so I don't know who to uh, credit for them, but we're going to use the slides as sort of a, a reference. We'll put the we'll put the uh, uh, we'll put the link in the show notes in case somebody wants to go back and and take a look at it. Uh, but at least it it had kind of a nice overview and gave us a framework for having some discussion. So, whoever at Southern Polytechnic State University put these slides together, thank you. We appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Making our job easier. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I the I guess the first question is why estimate? What why is it that we get asked to make these estimates? Because somebody's paying our check and ultimately they want to know what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Not even anymore if you're just working out of your garage because you're probably, you know, if you're making a making something, you got people who depend on something you're doing, whether it's a manufacturer or 
you know, your boss or the technicians or somebody's needs the work you you're providing and they got to know when it's coming so they can plan their schedule and what they're going to do with it. Right. Yeah. Right. If you're writing code, the QA testers have to know when they can expect it by so they know when they have their stuff ready. The board house has to know when they're going to fit in their production run. Same with the assembly house and then the validation guys who test the board. And it's a whole, a whole chain is all depending on you. Don't screw it up. Right. Yeah, I go back to uh, uh, the episodes we had with Professor Trevelyan where we were ta- he was talking about one of the major roles of engineers is to reduce uncertainty. And I think that's one of these things these estimates try to do. You know, When you roll into a project, uh, your manager may be looking at it going, I have no idea how much of this is going to cost. It's, you know, I know it's going to cost more than $10 and it's going to cost less than $10 million, but I don't know where in that range it's going to be. Or I know it's going to take more than a day and it's going to take more than a decade or less than a decade, but I don't know where the, the time frame is. And so I think we're asked as engineers to make these estimates so that people can start to, you know, reduce that uncertainty so they can make some logical business decisions. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people could make the estimate as it's more than ten dollars, but less than ten million. But it's you, you know, your expertise is needed to refine that even further. And a lot of times, you just need a starting point so you can refine the project as you go. And you know, an estimate's about the best place you can start. Yeah, yeah. Very rarely has my first estimate ever been set in stone. Usually, it's uh, what's your estimate for this kickoff meeting, and I'll say uh, I need three weeks. And then we'll have another meeting like a couple of days later after I've had a chance to look it over some more and I'll refine it. And, you know, then a few weeks later at a team meeting, I refine it again and eventually it's done, hopefully on schedule. Well, and it's good if you've got a a boss or management that lets you do that and revise and update. Uh, but I have been in some meetings where I'm getting a lot of pressure to make an estimate now. It's like we're sitting in here and I haven't had time to review all the documents. It's like, well, how long is it going to take? Well, I don't know. Well, it's your job to know these things. <laughs> yes, but we've never done this before. You invent new stuff all the time. What is the problem? It's <laughs> the difference between inventing and designing. <laughs> yeah. But. Yeah. In making these estimates, you know, hopefully we're reducing uncertainty about, you know, say a project's value or its duration or its cost. Uh, we help the management decide on project priority. Should we do, be doing project A, project B? And uh, for them, that allows them to allocate resources. If project A has more of a payoff, then we should be spending more money there, not so much in in project B. So I'm guessing that as, as you've gone along and had a little more experience making estimates, the quality of your estimates has gotten better? Oh, absolutely. But I, I tend to keep that internally um, just because, you know, I, I know if I sat down at my bench at – 10 o'clock after I came in, did my emails, got my coffee, and I worked from 10 to lunch and then lunch till close, I could probably knock that whole project out. But, you know, things come up. Maybe I have a, a get pulled into a meeting. Maybe everything goes wrong. You know, I'm not going to tell my boss eight hours. I'll tell him I need two to three days, depending on what other priorities I have. And, you know, assuming everything goes well. Right. I had some notes about getting into that later, but let's talk about it now since we're at it. And that's the the whole the issue of padding your estimate, right? Yes. So, and that becomes a matter of 
what organization you're dealing with, the culture of that organization, the people you're dealing with, the particular individuals, who your boss is, what your past history is with that boss. And so if you're dealing with somebody that you can be, you're very trustful of and you can be very honest with, you can say, hey, I think at the best it'll be three days, at worst it'll be three weeks, you know, whatever it is. But with certain people, you learn that you have to pad that. If you think it's going to be three days, tell them six. If you think it's going to be three weeks, tell them 10. That, you know, that never feels good to be doing that. Uh, but you find that you can actually work more efficiently if you're not being hounded constantly, constantly about hitting, hitting a deadline that uh, is unrealistic. Well, and generally people would rather you come in under budget and early than mm-hmm. late and over budget. Right. Which goes back to the whole bit of you have to manage expectations it is less important. I think in a lot of cases you actually hit an accurate number than you, you over deliver on the number you promise. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you know the situation extremely well, you should always err on the side of caution and ped your estimate and assume things will go wrong because way more often than not they do. Right. Right. This this is why I, I at least in my mind, people don't um, managers don't usually like senior engineers because the senior your engineers never jump in and say, "Hey, I can get it done in two weeks." They go, "Well, I don't know. <laughs> it might be two, or it might be four. But you go to the junior engineer who's anxious to please, and they go, "Oh, I can get it done in two weeks." Mm-hmm. And one thing we should mention. They, Oop, go ahead. Sorry, Jeff. I was going to say, if they survive long enough to be a senior engineer, then they're no longer saying, I can get it done in two weeks. Because <laughs> it really took them four. <laughs> because eventually they learn that, yeah, things come up. The, yeah. uh, you can't go with the most optimistic uh, estimate. Yeah. If you, if you get it done in two weeks, but you had to put in 80 hours a week each week on top of your normal activities, then you estimated poorly. <laughs> right. <laughs> One thing that goes along with this, you know, if, you know, maybe you can't say it'll, you know, project will take you normally four weeks. You pad it and say six weeks because you don't want to be a super pessimist and tell them eight. But, uh, you know, if things start going really bad, you know, there's a, a back order on some parts or the machining guys broke your prototype or something, trying to mill something out because you screwed up a dimension or it's just you're just not getting the results you want. You have to redo something. Communicate slippages early. No one likes to be told at the six-week deadline, oh, by the way, I need another two weeks. But if at week three, you already know it's going to take you more than six, make your voice heard because everyone will be unhappy, but less unhappy than they would be if you told them later on. Yeah, and, and if you want to if you want to have a conversation and want to explain stuff, you want to go talk to people in person, right? If you, <laughs> if you go deliver the bad news via email and, and you can't have, you know, you can't sort of ease into it and have that, you know, eye to eye contact and, and sort of that human interaction. That's a, a riskier way to deliver the bad news. Yeah. Depending on where everyone's located. Sometimes it's not possible to go face to face. Right. Yeah. I also found having uh spreadsheets or tables or, you know, just kind of like internal tools. Uh, this doesn't necessarily go to, to time alone, but you know, if my boss says, Hey, we got a pitch from, uh, you know, so-and-so, and they want our solution to fit into a three-inch by three-inch area. Is that possible, you know, given these rough specs? Uh, I can open up my spreadsheet and type in a bunch of stuff and say, it, it, at very first glance, it looks like it should be possible, but I'm not taking into account, you know, these four things. So 
we'll have to do more work, but you can tell him it's not unreasonable right off the bat. And he likes mm-hmm. that because he could be on a call with the customer and he can say, I just checked with Carmen. He said it's initially possible, but we'll have to do more work. And that keeps the customer engaged. That says, wow, sure. these guys are really on top of things. They let's, let's buy their parts. So it helps us look better. Um, and it just comes from those quick estimation skills. Absolutely. And, and your estimation skills are getting better with time. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I know that. Yeah, okay. Maybe maybe the first couple of times I estimate some area for our solution size, I was a little conservative or a little uh, aggressive. And it turns out everyone loves to use a lot of spacing to get better thermal performance. So maybe you add a fudge factor of 30%, and that gets you a little closer to the uh, estimated layout area. And then uh, you can say, yes, it's possible with greater certainty. Yeah. Yeah. Well, certainly past experience is a, is a big benefit. You know, Mm -hmm. again, one of the things when I was doing machine design is we never did the same machine twice, you know, at least it never seemed that way. And so uh, it was hard to build up that experience and that knowledge because every, you know, every job was completely new. Uh, But if you had a job that would come in and you could actually repeat it three or four times, you know, you'd start to, uh, you start to uh, get better at estimating, you know, what the problems were because you'd been through it a few times. You know, one of the other things that uh, helps the quality of estimates usually is is the time to delivery, right? When you're sitting, let's say you've got a big project and you're two years out, everything seems, it's hard to estimate, you know, how long is it going to take and what do we need? Uh, when you get down to 30 days, you better be pretty sure about, you know, what the, what the deadlines are and who has to deliver what uh, in time in order to get the, the product out the door. Yeah. As a personal preference, I hate long deadlines like that where it's like, we just need this within 90 days. Well, great. I'm going to wait till day 75 before I even look at it. <laughs> oh, I'd love to have 90 days for stuff. <laughs> uh, I'm just pulling numbers out of my butt, but you know what I mean? Like I, I don't want to be micromanaged, but I need to have some kind of deliverable in order to keep me motivated. Otherwise I'm going to say, well, oh, you know, I got another one Alan Wolke's YouTube videos in me. I'll take a longer lunch. He's talking about Smith charts <laughs> and I love Smith charts now when he does it, which yeah. yes, so, I'm uh, learning. It's technical. I'm not on Reddit, but and also not necessarily my job. <laughs> right. Right. So, so Adam, you mentioned you'd like to have 90 days. What, what kind of deadlines do you normally work with? Well, I mean, so in reality, the deadlines are set long, long, long in advance. But I never <laughs> get the information to do it until a month out. And I really okay. need two or three. I, it, and some of it is, I, it sounds like the time scales I work in, I get bigger chunks than it sounds like Carmen does. Um, right. Where a month is pushing it on some things. And then there's always the, uh, well, sure, this might take me eight hours, 20 hours, something like that. When is your 20 hours? <laughs> <laughs> your 20 hours is in 80 days. <laughs> right. So. Nice. Well, and, and that's part of it too, right? The, how the, the project is organized, you know, whether it's a, a tightly knit, uh, well-oiled machine and, and the groups are interacting well and, and the, the company has, you know, good, uh, management tools and software tools and, and, uh, you know, everything's working great or whether, you know, it's just one of these things that sort of, you know, the project sort of floats from group to group and nobody knows who's in charge and it happens when it happens. That has a, that has a huge influence on the quality of the estimates as well. Mm-hmm. I suppose one of the other things that has a, a big estimate on uh, the quality of estimates too is a certain amount of luck. 
you know, when you're, you're going through the project and you're trying to think of all the things that might be a, a hiccup, uh, not forgetting one. And since you, <laughs> especially if you've never done it, uh, it's real easy to forget the one that, that you're going to get caught by. Yeah. You don't know what you don't know. Sometimes in the positive way. Well, sometimes it's positive. Sometimes, sometimes you were expecting something to be a, a much bigger disaster than you expected. I mean, it, you know, you get, you build up in your head that, you know, whenever luck breaks, if you will, it, it breaks for the negative. But I've actually, I've seen enough of these events that there have been a fair number of events where I'm like, oh crap, this is, this is going to be a complete redesign. You know, I, our model's 100% off on this. And then you really dig into it and you're like, oh, no, I'm just measuring this wrong. <laughs> well, maybe you just live a charmed existence. No. <laughs> uh, the times where it breaks the other way have been, have demonstrably been just as bad. <laughs> I'm just claiming that luck may be a Gaussian distribution. Okay. I suppose it probably is, but it always seems like we're, we're fighting the headwind. Yes. Isn't there a, there's a phrase for that. It's the bad beat theory. We ignore, when we have the tailwind, we ignore that, that uh, good fortune, but we always remember the headwind. Yes. I always like the, uh, you know, the joke that, uh, I don't necessarily know it's a joke, but the anecdote that, you know, people estimate where they're going in their car by the best case scenario. Like, oh, it's a half an hour away, but they, that's if you left at, you know, noon when no one's on the road, really. It's not when you're leaving at rush hour. Yeah. My wife constantly likes to make fun of me because I think it takes 15 minutes to get anywhere in the metro. <laughs> you know, and and I think that's because usually I'm in my car for 15 minutes going somewhere, but like it could be three or four times the distance and I'll still tell people it takes 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm pretty centrally located here in Raleigh and it's like 20 minutes to quite a few spots, but. Not if you hit the wrong time. <laughs> <laughs> yep, right. that's how that works. Yeah, so tying that back into engineering is you, you got to learn to estimate everything, not just the best case scenario, as we've said a couple times, I think, already. Yeah. Well, so when management comes and asks for these estimates, they ask you, but I guess the question is, are you the right person to do it? Who should be doing these estimates? Oh, that's difficult. Depends on what your goal is. If your goal is to make a customer happy, it should be the marketing guy because they will always say everything takes two days. If you want to make the engineer happy, you let him <laughs> estimate because he can say, no, that's actually two weeks worth of work. Well, now how is the customer going to be happy if the marketing person promises two days and it takes two weeks? Because <laughs> you can string the customer along for you know two days at a time. Uh, yeah, that happens. Well, I'm, I'm just pulling <laughs> numbers out of my head again, but – you know, marketing tends to underestimate the amount of work or saying, yeah, that's not a problem versus an engineer who's going to say, I don't know what the heck I'm going to find. I'm going to, you know, can you wait an extra week? Right. It's very rarely the engineer who's saying, hey, can you pull that deadline in for me, please? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. It never happens. Yeah. So, you know, in general, one would think that the person to be making the estimate would be the person most familiar with the, the problem at hand. But oftentimes, the person most familiar with the problem at hand is on vacation or on a different project or unavailable, and then you get pulled in, and again, you're sort of left in the the difficulty of your your bosses, your management looking for a an accurate estimate and thinking, 
and this happens a lot, uh, that you are, you know, all engineers are interchangeable and that if engineer A is out for a week with the flu, that engineer B, who has never worked on the same projects, uh, should be able to walk in and, and estimate with the same accuracy as engineer A. But doesn't it work out that only the most reckless people make the the uh, best estimations or the the estimations that are believed? Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's right. Right when they go out and uh, you know the big companies take multiple quotes and and uh, at one point when I was doing machine design, uh, we were doing some business with General Motors and this was. Uh, at a period where General Motors was going out and asking for like 10 quotes on a job. So you'd go out and ask for 10 quotes, and then they come back and take the three lowest quotes, and they go back to these three lowest quotes and say, okay, uh, the lowest quote, the, the other seven, you're out. You bid too high. The three that are lowest, okay, you need to drop this cost by 10 or 15%. Tell, tell us how you're going to do it. <laughs> So when you got when you got the job, you never knew because it was that you you were the best for the job or whether you had just made a big mistake. Yeah, I can't say I've ever been in anything like that before. <laughs> I've been on the receiving side of some of those bids. Mm-hmm. And? Well, I mean, so usually it either works out or doesn't, but fifty <laughs> fifty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, okay, okay. So so well, Adam, let's take a step back there. Yep. Yes, it either works out or it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> that limbo you state about that. Never, I did cover both options. Yes. <laughs> well, you have the hasn't worked out yet or isn't going to work out. I mean, so there's four states there. Um, no, I mean, so sometimes we'll get a contractor that completely misses something in a plan, um, and that becomes a problem. I mean, less on the engineer side, but um, and sometimes we get someone who completely misses in the plan and isn't really willing to deal with it. And, uh, that just generally ends not so well. Um, usually with arguments about, well, that's not the way we bid it. You should pay us for what we think it, what it really should cost. And like, well, no, that's not the way that works. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, being on the receiving side of bids that are way too low is, it's, um, not much fun for the, the, uh, higher -er. Hire, right? the hiring party. So, yeah. You know, on these bigger jobs that was that were often being bid by machine shops that could be fairly sizable but weren't huge in comparison to the to the big businesses that they were serving, if the job went bad enough, the company could go belly up, go bankrupt. So, <laughs> the, that was the other thing is that if if you got a bid that was too low and the company couldn't deliver it, you you did have to weigh the risk that that they would go belly up and you get nothing at all, right? You get a half completed machine and they wouldn't have the funding to finish it at all. And you'd have to, you know, dive in and try to finish up the job yourself. So to, uh, to avoid going too low in the bids and to avoid having this problem, one of the, one of the important things that's uh, mentioned by these notes that we have from the, the good folks at Southern Polytechnic State University, go SPSU, were that that you should have multiple people making the estimates, right? That the, the, the general thought was more is the better. That you at least want two and preferably more sets of eyes taking a look at this thing just to keep keep you from missing an important detail. Do you guys normally work with other engineers in in creating estimates? Yes, uh, often. You know, often at least somebody in charge of supervising the project. You know. Mm -hmm. uh, 
there are always varying levels of bureaucracy. Uh, some of the teams I've worked on, you you actually have people whose entire job is to basically maintain a Gantt chart of some kind, a mm-hmm. scheduler of some kind. Other times it's basically project engineers trying to perform the same job, you know, with 10 to 20% of their time. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, usually it's a collaboration of some kind. Excellent. And do you, do you end up having to work with different engineers on every project or is it basically the, you know, what you're working with the same several engineers most of the time? Uh, well, in my current job, it's the same set of engineers, but I've, I've been on projects and at companies where it, you know, it, would change from project to project. There was enough movement among various groups that you'd basically have almost a fresh team every time. Right. Well, we'll, we'll talk about here in a second, the different uh, types of estimates, but our slides here uh, make some suggestions about as you're making these estimates, you know, what kind of conditions should the estimate be based on? And they suggest normal operating conditions that you don't allow for contingencies. That is, uh, if, if you normally think it'll take a week to get to the machine shop, say a week, don't say, well, you know, if, if we're on spring break or, you know, if, uh, you're ordering electrical parts and, and you don't have to worry about Chinese new year or, you know, whatever the thing is, you, you, you know, these normal operating conditions, and then you can adjust the plan based on these contingencies, but, but that's kind of, uh, dependent on when the project starts and when the project ends and, and what, you know, whatever kind of lucky breaks you have along the way. Yeah. You don't want to take in too much information at once to start estimating. Yeah. And I think it, it, it confuses it, right? You know, you're trying to make an estimate as to how long it takes and you start when you have all these conditions and all these conditionals on your, on your estimate. I think it, it makes you less accurate. Oh yeah, for sure. They also suggest that time units should be, you know, whatever time units, whether you want to quote in seconds or minutes or hours or days or weeks or months, it, that's not so important, but be consistent about whatever units so you're not numerically confusing minutes and hours and days. I always give seconds. <laughs> As you should. Yes, yes. I just have a stopwatch going while I'm doing my layouts. And as it gets closer and closer to the, you know, that, that four-hour mark, I'm like, oh, I'm not done yet. I'm falling behind. But you just used hours. Isn't that like a 60,000 second mark? Duh. I didn't want to do math on air. I didn't want to do math on air. Forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> they also suggest that, uh, you know, in along with normal operating conditions, you don't account for un- uh, unexpected time delays or, or cost concerns. Uh, but that if, if you want to sort of give a weighting to this, uh, they suggest using optimistic, likely, and pessimistic estimates. So uh, at some point, you start after saying, well, you know, I think it'll be two weeks, uh, but an optimistic would be nine days, and a pessimistic would be four weeks, you know, whatever it is. At least you're putting some sort of range on that. And that doesn't mean that it can't be worse or better than those optimistic and pessimistic estimates, but I guess it's sort of like putting a a three signal limit on it. <laughs> that's going for, that's going against our initial, uh, Pedger estimate advice, but I agree. <laughs> well, so there's a difference. If you think that it will take two weeks, you're, they're asking you to say two weeks. If you think it'll take two weeks and you say my, my likely is four, then you're padding your estimate. True. I guess you could always just keep that optimistic one close to the vest and say, it'll be between two and four weeks and don't, don't tell them 10 days. Well, okay, so so you can give them the the correct likely mean value, 
Yeah. But you just pull in your optimistic and pessimistic. I guess you pull in your optimistic and you push out your pessimistic. Yeah. Yeah. You skew it a little bit. <laughs> I'm not I'm not advocating lying, by the way. I'm just saying you got to, you know, very rarely are you just allowed to focus on one project and one project alone. Right. You know. It's um, it's providing an estimate in context. Yeah. Right. Yeah. My day, I don't know about you guys, but I could show up one day and get told, oh, you got a board in from customer XYZ. They need it debugged because it doesn't work and it's ruining their production. Any estimates I've given at that point are blown right out of the water. And that's what I work on until it's till it's done. But that's about the only thing that can cause me to have single focus on anything. So, and stuff gets shuffled. You know, all of a sudden we get a new opportunity we didn't think we had or. Uh, an opportunity falls through and I have more time and yeah, it, it changes things. Yeah. Given normal circumstances, I won't be working on just this project. Yeah. I, I, I just had a thought when I was um, getting my MBA, I took a course that we were talking about capital planning, you know, how much to budget for p- projects. And, and on the other side, right. The, you know, the advice to the managers was to learn who was padding their estimates, right? So if you if you get the estimate from uh, from junior engineer A, uh, who's really being optimistic, you might want to multiply the numbers, you know, the cost and the time by a factor of two or three to make it more reasonable. And if you're getting it from the engineer that uh, is always padding their projects, you might divide it by one and a half or two to get something that's more reasonable. So whatever games you're playing with the numbers on the way up, the same sort of games get played uh, at the next level as well. Yeah, they just have to pass them up the food chain. Right. It, it's amazing anything accurate gets up and down the food chain, right? <laughs> okay, so there are, let's say, three, well, really two big categories of, of types of estimation, and, and then we'll you know, sort of find a middle ground that we'll call a hybrid. So when we're doing estimation, we can do a top-down estimation. We're basically, we're saying, okay, we see the big picture, we're going to big, break the big picture into smaller pieces, and we decide how small the pieces need to be to get us in the ballpark where we feel co- comfortable, you know, putting our estimate out. But we start at the top, you know, here's what we want to get done, and we're going to break it into smaller pieces. Uh, the bottom up is almost, you're almost doing a design from the bottom up where you, you're relying on past experience to allow you to catch all the details. And so you're worrying about, you know, you know, very careful you know, detailed listing of materials and processes and methods, and then adding that up on your way up and then accumulating them and gathering them into sub projects that go into the big project. Uh, and then you, you get everything summed up at the top. And of course the hybrid is, uh, you do part of the estimate top down and you do part of the estimate bottom up and then you compare and see if they match. And if they don't match, if there's a discontinuity between the two, uh, then you go back and, and review your estimates trying to resolve that, uh, that difference. So as you do your estimates, do you recognize your form of estimation as being top down or bottom up or something in the middle? I'm probably much more of a top down person. Mm-hmm. I think I actually go more bottom up. Okay. I think it depends. Well, no, sorry. I'm more hybrid. Never mind. <laughs> well, I think we're all hybrids of a kind, but if, if yeah. we're leading yeah. towards one, um, I haven't found a very good process for, for estimating a lot of these tasks. And, uh, for whatever reason, I just, 
I, I typically have not been on task for my material constraints. I shouldn't say that. Where the lead items, uh, the lead times, even of kind of my rare items, have been the driving factor. Mm-hmm. Rarely am I in a, do I put myself in a position where I can't do anything until blank part gets in. I find another way to do it. Right. So. And, and what did you say, Adam? Did, uh, did you tend to be bottom up, top down? I think it depends on the situation and what I'm estimating. Okay. So with with things that I do more often, um, I tend to do more top down. Sure. But I'd say probably bar by and far the most common is the bottom up approach. Okay. Um, but depends on the situation and, and prior knowledge because it's kind of hard to do top down if you don't have enough experience. Absolutely. The, the uh, value of top down is it's quicker. Right, you don't have to go through all the details, but you better be experienced. You better be accurate in in what you're doing. So, uh, three of the methods that are listed here is is you know applying to top down is a consensus method, uh, where you get rough estimates by experienced personnel. So if you've got several people in there in your in your shop in your in your office you know in your in that you work with that are experienced, they can have rough estimates. You toss things back and forth to uh, between one another, decide uh, what seems reasonable. Another means of doing it is a, a ratio method. So if, if the jobs are changing, but in general, you know, your type of jobs have certain, you know, cost per square foot or machining time per pound of steel. Um, when I was doing, uh, again, uh, machine design work, you know, I could count on how much was, you know, what percentage was engineering and what percentage was machining and what material percentage was materials and what pen, percentage was debug. And it, they'd drift up and down from project to project. But overall, in general, I had a, you know, I had a handle on on about where those were. So even though it might be a new project, I could use the ratio method to uh, make some estimates. But the downside is if something new pops up, you know, something you hadn't thought of, then you don't have any cost for each of the specific tasks that you're going to uh, that you're going to do. On the other hand, if you're doing uh, something bottom up, uh, you know, you're making these detailed listings of, of materials and processes. Uh, this would be something like a, uh, a collision shop when they come in there, every collision is a little different, but they've got their little book. They look out, you know, to repair the door and repair the, the window and to do this, you know, they add up the numbers. Uh, and you might have, you know, some sort of parametric method where, uh, the job is, you know, you can just scale it up and down depending on, on how big it is compared to, uh, normal jobs. But the disadvantage of this, of course, is that, uh, you may foster excessive detail. You may spend lots of time worrying about all the details and not really get to the point of the important part, which is getting an accurate estimate. So the idea is you want to get as accurate an estimate as you can, but in as little time as possible. Yeah, I think that detailed listing of materials is maybe, I think it leads some people down the wrong path because it doesn't always have to be super detailed. I, I think often you can look at, okay, well, these are my high price items. In, in this project and take it from, well, maybe you need 50 things, but eh, okay, I'm not going to worry about the bolts right? because they're really relatively cheap. I'll just throw a factor of 10% on the end when I'm done right? or something like that. Um, and that can definitely make bottom up far, far faster because then you're only looking at say, you know, a handful of items that you have to get a decent or, price. Or right? you, you recognize the things that aren't cots or are rare, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, and I suppose that, uh, I think Brian or, or maybe it was Carmen, you said that, you know, we all use something that's in the middle, some sort of hybrid method. And I think that's, that's probably true. But at least, uh, 
as we go through the estimation process, we can be aware whether we're applying sort of a top-down mindset or a bottom-up uh, mindset to what we're doing. Uh, one of the other methods, sort of an a alternative to all this, uh, is called the Delphi method. Have any of you used the Delphi method before? Is this where you go and ask a Greek up on a mountain? <laughs> that's 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 exactly it. Uh, if um, I've used it, it's been by accident. I've never heard the name. Okay. Well, uh, according to our uh, uh, our trusted source, the the good folks at Wikipedia, uh, the Delphi method is a structured communication technique or method originally developed as a systematic interactive forecasting method, which relies on a panel of experts. Uh, the experts answer questionnaires in two or more rounds. After each round, a facilitator or change a agent provides an anonymized, anonymized sur summary. Sorry. <laughs> a facilitator or change agent provides an anonymized summary of the experts' forecast from the previous round as well as the reasons they provided for their judgments. Thus, experts are encouraged to revise their earlier answers in light of the replies of other members of the panel. It is believed that during this process, the range of answers will decrease and the group will converge towards the correct, in quotes, answer. So basically, they take a group of non-stakeholders that are uh, likely to be informed on this topic and then uh, taint the pool by showing them what other alleged experts think. Yes. A after receiving their first opinion. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So the the first part is that you, A, you can never get two experts to agree, uh, but B, it's really hard to find more than two experts in one subject. I mean, yes, I, I suppose there are areas where there's there are great pools of experts, but it seems like every interesting, you know, engineering job I was on, there nobody had done it before. Who were you going to turn to to be the expert to tell you how much it was going to cost? Well, and I, and I say this not as a political interjection, but look at the estimates over the past year from actual experts on like a border wall, mm -hmm. how long it would take and how much it cost. Like, I think we're already up to like 25 billion for just part of it. Yeah. And it's like, and these were experts like that, that is roughly the equivalent of what you're saying with respect to the Delphi model where we're almost an order of magnitude different. Yeah. Well, and, I, and some of that comes down to having more detail as plans progress. Oh, agreed. Agreed. But I mean, it's, but, but how often have you seen projects where, whether it be a software project or hardware development or, or, you know, a infrastructure where they make an initial estimate, it's going to be 10 million. It ends up being 20 million. It's going to be 2 billion. It ends up being 6 billion. Or, you know, you look at something like, what was it, the big dig in Boston that took forever? Was that actually technically constrained or was that, uh, politically constrained? I don't know, but what I'm saying is there are lots of cost overruns. Yeah. Just because you have experts around to tell you how much to bid doesn't mean that, that you're not going to run into cost overruns. And, and those are by far the exception. They happen, but uh, generally going through processes like this, you get a pretty good number. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it start at 10 million, go to 60 million. That's that's rare. And usually it's due to something, well, between unforeseen technical challenges and political challenges. Right. It happens. So a quick look uh, again to Wikipedia says that the big dig in Boston was originally estimated to cost $2.8 and originally was completed at a cost of over $14.6 Well, not entirely in order of magnitude off, but. <laughs> <laughs> right. Close. Right. 
Right. So anyway, there's a there's another uh, potential estimation method. I noticed that I don't see dartboard and monkeys. <laughs> yeah, that's on the list, right? No, what? it's not. What? Well, this list is clearly worthless. I'm willing to bet that somewhere, someone, some engine, I can, there's somewhere on the IEEE, someone has done the estimate of like random number generator versus the Delphi method. I'm sure. <laughs> you know, and sometimes, unfortunately, things come down to not better than the monkey and a, and a dartboard. Yeah. Um, and hopefully it gets worked out over time. Hopefully a very short time. Yes, because otherwise there are big messes in the traffic interchanges. Hopefully not. <laughs> well, if the job doesn't get done, right? Aren't there if there's if there's a lack of traffic lights, doesn't this cause some problems? Well, no. Let, let's get. Um, I mean, the first thing is not having traffic signals is not a bad thing. Roundabouts. Uh, <laughs> yes, you and roundabouts. <laughs> so, uh, uh, more editorializing on my part is: is there something to? Like the necessity of the lies that we have to tell ourselves in order to do things. Like, if we knew how off we might be, we would never undertake the projects that we we do, and we we would just lock up in some sort of uh, you know schedule fear driven paralysis. There has to be. I mean, but look at the you know. Uh, for the for the human species to survive, right? We needed we needed the optimistic person that said, "Yes, I can run across that range without, you know, getting eaten by the lion or tiger," or I need to be uh, brave be enough to jump off the cliff to uh, to get to the tree that has the uh, the food hanging from it. Or, you know, we we needed to be optimistic in our uh, in our beliefs in order to survive. I'll eat this strange food. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it's – are there any real good examples? Like are there any design houses or businesses that are famous for actually cracking this problem? And then I wonder if you looked at those – if you looked at those organizations or companies, you you basically came to the impression that like, well, they hit it because they never take any risks. You know, they as, as, as per what you said before, they only do things they've done before. Sure. So, I mean, look at look at any of the the big uh, you know say phone companies that are making these you know these phones. I mean, Samsung took a huge hit on which I can't remember which model it was with the battery problems. Somewhere in there, they somebody estimated wrong and what that battery could do and and what its capabilities were, and there were some you know there's some real world costs to be paid to that. But on on the whole, all those companies have to be pretty good. I mean, Apple comes out with device after device, even you know. Uh, those that aren't in the business so much, uh, Google, you know, they sort of make their boutique phones to encourage others to make phones that use the Android operating system. Uh, but they have to judge how much this project is going to cost and when it can be delivered uh, with a, with at least a certain amount of accuracy. You know, we talk about things that you've never done before, but I think generally, well, I know generally you can take something similar-ish. I mean, it's not like Google hired people who never designed electronics and then made them make those estimates. Don't assume that. Well, okay. <laughs> so most likely, um, well, I mean, in the fact that it succeeded leads me to believe that people had some, some experience in general, but you know, okay. So I'm building a smartphone, but I've built a computer before. 
and not that it's perfect, but it is, it's a reference to start with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but also, I mean, uh, the phones are a bad example because while there are features added to each one, while there are, you know, model to model differences and they're always pushing the limits, that's fairly iterative. It's not like the first, it's, you more ask the question about the first Android phone or the first iPhone. Those were open-ended projects with relatively poor constraints and an unknown outcome. You know? Yeah, but, you know, the Palm Pilot had existed before that and cell phones had existed before that. So it's kind of taking the two and smashing them together. Um, yes, there's definitely less constraints than just adding a new feature to a new phone. Yeah. But even in the vacuum of never having built a phone or anything else, very few things are something completely brand new. Usually they're incremental improvements on something that already exists. Absolutely. So, so my thought is that companies that operate on razor thin margins, you know, they're in the grocery business or selling, you know, a gas station. You have to be doing the same thing all the time. You have to be really good at that business and know that business really well uh, to operate that. If you if you're doing something that you rarely do or you're having to do new all the time and you're going to survive in the business, it means that you have to be, you know, if you think it's going to cost you ten thousand dollars, you better be getting forty thousand dollars for the job because every once in a while the things are going to go wrong and it's going to cost you sixty thousand to get the job done. Yeah. And you still want to make money too. If you still, most people want to stay in business for what for whatever re- reason. Yeah. People seem ridiculous to like notions. It it is crazy. Still pushing your notion of corporate nihilism. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> this business wants to succeed. What is this crap? Well, actually, there have been a few that you wonder. <laughs> yes, if, if they don't have that in mind, they, some decisions seem so crazy. Oh, I think yeah, Harvard Business. Put a review put out. What is that? The ten worst business decisions in history. And oh yeah, there's several companies that look like they were intentionally trying to go out of business. I'm sure they all sounded like great decisions before that happened. No, it's never that. It's never like the swashbuckling, brilliant things. It's always the uh, wow. We really like let that patent expire. <laughs> you know, I could. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. I think one of them was uh, one of the major ski companies forgot to renew their lease and they had some crazy lease to the mountains for like $100 for 10 years, but they had to renew it by a certain date and forgot to. So it went up to bid and it like shot up to like 10 or a hundred million dollars to renew the lease. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. yeah. I think whoever was supposed to renew the lease got fired over that one. Yes. Boss's son, I'm sure. Or mm. daughter. Oh, then probably not. <laughs> Right. Well, so uh, aside from bad business decisions, which are sort of outside the realm of estimates, what are some of the reasons that estimates go wrong? You've made a good faith estimate, uh, but the you know the project runs over budget, maybe way under budget. Maybe you're lucky, as Brian said. Unknown knowns is that the one? <laughs> right. <laughs> or, or known unknowns? Yeah, I forget my Rumsfeld. But certainly there there are unexpected. Interaction costs. Uh, you tried to do something. You tried to work with a group. You tr- you know tried to make a business deal happen. And it didn't. It didn't go well. The one that you talked about in the past before Brian was science projects. 
Yes. Uh, you, you think that you're doing, you're, you're just doing an engineering project. You're designing something and using known, known science. Uh, but you turn out to, uh, to be trying to reinvent, uh, the scientific theory. Yes. If you have to start to consider the, uh, the actual physical, const- the, uh, physics constraints of your device, you're in a bad spot. <laughs> if those aren't given, <laughs> You may have taken it a left or you should have taken a right. If I can just change the gain of this amplifier. Yeah. Um, something else that happens, you know, abnormal conditions, power goes out, a flood happens. Those are things that you just uh, you can't control too much. Another thing that you can oftentimes can't tr- control are design flaws. You're bringing in a, a, a product, a component, and there's a design flaw in that component or somebody in your own corporation or business misses something in a design and all of a sudden, just before you're ready to ship, you know, that comes to light. Or even worse, after you've shipped, it comes to light. That can be a real problem. And when you're running really close to your schedule and your uh, your manufacturer takes some shortcuts without telling you. <laughs> yeah. And, th- and that happens a lot, too. They think that it's no big deal, right? They've made this stuff for many years. And they say, well, we'll just uh, we'll use plastic B instead of plastic A. It won't hurt anybody and save us a few pennies. And they don't tell you. I've actually seen that exact thing. Mm. Yes, that's no joke. Or what I've suspected I've seen happen is like a board vendor will try to will, will take your 12-layer board and put it on a 14-layer panel so they can panelize it with something else. Mm-hmm. And accidentally include additional copper. Uh, I've seen that. Not recently, but I've seen that. Right. Right. Well, and, and you try to build up, again, you try to build up trust with a, a manufacturing firm or, or a, a supplier. And you can you can develop that. And, and you have the supplier that's been rock solid for 10 years. And every project, if there's a problem, they let you know and timely. And then they get sold. Or the uh, the, the engineer that, was, that you were working with retires after 40 years and they bring in somebody new who does things differently. And, and, you know, so, uh, you never know. It can always change. Absolutely. And, and again, uh, not to hark too many times back to my, my experience doing machine design, but that was where I had the most, uh, issues with estimating and creeping featureism is a big one. You know, you, you sit down and you agree, okay, this machine is going to do ABC and you get three quarters of the way through and they go, uh, can we get it to do D, E, and F too? And uh, if you don't put boundaries on that, all of a sudden you find yourself making changes for for features. You know, H, I, J, K, L, M, and it just it doesn't quit, and the the costs and the uh, budget keep creeping out. So if you find that if you find that happening a lot, this this creeping featureism, I suppose the uh, uh, the one way to improve estimates is uh, is keep historical data right. If you keep data on what you've done. Uh, then at least you've got some some uh, science, some some numbers to go back and look at, and and uh, try to make your estimates a little better in the future. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It goes back to the, the spreadsheets I like to keep. It allows me to really easy sanity check stuff, and you know, provide a, a jumping off point for a better estimate. Right. So at the, at this point, would your estimate be that uh, we've uh, we've probably gone as far in depth as we uh, we should probably go with estimation? I'd uh, reckon you're probably correct there. Yeah, I think we've we've tapped this well. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I, I, I think that given our, our, our limited knowledge in this area, that we've probably gone as far as we dare. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we, we've circled back on the same couple of points here. We've hammered them home. I think we're, we're good. Let's put a bow on it. Plus, you know, this is our first episode in a little while. I'm kind of tired, a little rusty. <laughs> I don't know what to do with yep. my hands right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really don't want to know. I mean, I, I can't drum them on the desk. That's just going to make editing for you hard. I estimate that it would balloon your time. Oh, yeah, please don't. That would be bad. <laughs> Although, I do get some pretty audacity signs. The waveforms look nice. <laughs> <laughs> the good thing is you can be muted in post. It's like I was never here. <laughs> All right. Well, tell you what, let's call this one done and... uh We'll get back together in the not-too-distant future for another episode of The Engineering Commons. All right. Talk to you guys later. All right. See you. Good night. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our musical introduction is by John Trimble and our concluding theme by Paul Stevenson.